First Thessalonians, right after Colossians, <laughs> right before Second Thessalonians. <laughs> Amen. Um, I, I like to interchange verses, so we're going to alternate. So I'm going to read verse 1. You're going to read verse 2, odds and evens. Amen? Yeah. So y'all got evens, right? Yeah. I got odds. We're going to read the last verse together. Amen? Amen? Amen. Here we go. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles. That's verse 5. That's my part. <laughs> Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness altogether. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Uh, if I can present before you today the sermon uh, title, it would be God Won't Do It Without You. God Won't Do It Without You. Let us pray. Father uh, and our God, we are grateful and thankful uh, that for some strange reason you decided to lavish your love upon us. It was nothing but your grace and your mercy. There was nothing in us deserving of your love. But for some reason, for some reason, for some reason, God, you decided to send your son Jesus to, to, to stand in our behalf and live a perfect life, to, to quench the wrath of God on the cross as our substitute, and to raise victoriously from the grave, alive with all power in his hand, so that we might have access to the throne of God, so that we could be adopted into the family of God as children of God, and so that we might be called fellow heirs of the kingdom of his grace. And so God, we say thank you, because we didn't deserve it. We've done nothing to deserve it, but for some strange reason, you did it anyway. And so God, sometimes all we can say it's thank you, hallelujah, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. God won't do it without you. Growing up, my, uh, my father was really into cars. Um, early in his adult life, he actually did some amateur drag racing. Uh, actually fixed cars since, since the time he was in high school. Uh, and so he was the type of guy... Uh, that on Sundays, he wasn't watching the NFL, he was watching NASCAR. Uh, and, which is really weird, because he was from the hood. And so, you know, guys from the hood, maybe you do, but guys from the hood typically aren't thought of, you know, as NASCAR watchers uh, uh, in that sense. But, but as I was growing up, he would always try to get me 
uh, to work on cars with them or to be excited about NASCAR or, or going to car shows and, and looking at all these old antique cars, these muscle cars, uh, or go to drag races with him. And I just was not excited about those things. I could not care less. I was into sports. And my dad didn't like sports. So when I was growing up, we didn't do a whole lot of stuff together because I liked sports and he didn't. And he loved cars and I didn't. And so as he would fix cars and do all these things, I paid no attention to him whatsoever. Like, I didn't care about learning anything about how to fix a car until I got my own car. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in high school, I finally got my own car, uh, and I see my friends with their cars, and you know, everybody's working on cars, so it almost became like the popular thing to do was to work on your own car. And I couldn't take my car to a mechanic anyway, because we were poor. So I had to learn how to fix my own car. And so, you know, as I got into it, you know, you start off with some of the basics, like, you know, changing a tire, and learning how to change your oil, and, and then you start moving up gradually to more complicated uh, 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 projects on your car. Uh, and so I began to enjoy it a little bit as I would start these projects and finish it, be able to do it on my own. You know, I had a job at the time, so I was making my own money. And so, you know, I was kind of feeling a little independent. But every once in a while, I would come to a project or a point in a project where I couldn't get any further, and I needed to call my dad for some help. So I would say, I'd say, Dad, I'm stuck, I need your help. And, and, and he would come out uh, and he would, you know, start assessing the problems and, uh, and, and start helping me. Uh, and uh, if I'm honest, you know, I wasn't very good at that help part. Uh, because as he was working, uh, I would usually start playing basketball because there was a basketball court in the driveway and that's where we fixed the cars. And so as he was helping me, I would start playing basketball or I don't know if any of you guys did this, but I would act like I had to go get something from inside the house. <laughs> like I gotta run to the bathroom, I need a drink of water. And then I ended up staying in there and watching TV. <laughs> and, and what typically happened was he would give out this call and he would say, you asked me for help not to do it by myself. So why is it that I'm the only one out here working? And, and oftentimes this is, how we treat God. You know, we pray these elaborate prayers when we get stuck into sins, when we're bound by sin, or when we're going through a difficult time, or we're praying the expectations of God, and we just want God to show up and miraculously do it without having to give any effort of our own. Now, don't, don't be confused here. I'm not talking about the type of effort that earns salvation for you. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but there is a sense in which God wants you to work with him in the Christian life. Right? See, effort without God is self-reliance. But God without effort is an apathetic, unengaged Christian who doesn't take seriously their walk. And so as we get here in 1 Thessalonians, what do we see as Paul is addressing these Christians uh, at the church in Thessalonica? Well, if you read through chapter 1, you'll see that the Thessalonians had an exemplary Christian example uh, among the nations, right? Uh, verse 6 says that they received the word, they turned from their idols and received the word uh, enthusiastically uh, despite severe persecution. 
Acts chapter 17 lays out this story for us as it talks about how Paul comes into the city and begins teaching at their synagogues, uh, and, and some people uh, begin to trust Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Even uh, some influential women in the city began to trust Christ. But then some Jews came along, and they weren't happy about Paul sharing this gospel of Jesus Christ among this heathen group of people who already was worshiping all these gods. They thought the message of Christ was heresy. And so the Bible says that they went into the marketplace and grabbed some thugs, it actually said, it, it says godless people, but that, it, it means thugs. They went and got some thugs to start a riot. So the Jews went and got some thugs from the street, brought them into the synagogue, into the city, and, and made them start a riot to drive Paul out of there. So you can imagine how Paul feels. He has come and spent time sharing the gospel and watched these these unbelieving people come to saving faith in Christ, and he's immediately driven out of their, their presence because of persecution. And not only was Paul persecuted out, but the people uh, who had now trusted Christ were persecuted by their own people. So Paul finds himself in Athens, and he's wondering, what is happening with these people? Have they stayed the course in their Christian faith? Have they reneged on the faith because of how difficult it was? These are new and young believers and new converts. Have they been able to hold up under pressure? And then as they were in Athens in in chapter 3, we find out that Paul sends Timothy back to find out how these believers are doing. And he receives this good report that encourages his heart. And not only are the, the Thessalonians doing well, but the Bible says that they're flourishing under fire. Despite the persecution, this group of Christians is killing it for the glory of God. It says that the gospel is being spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia because of their faith and their love for one another. Could you imagine that? A young church with a whole bunch of new converts having such a reputation that the gospel is going out because of how strong their faith is, even though they didn't have somebody to disciple them fully because of persecution. This is, this is the type of people that Paul is addressing here, and it's beautiful to see. The first three, he spends three chapters, the first three chapters literally just encouraging them and telling him, them how much he's encouraged by their faith and their walk with God. This is one of the few chapters in the Bible where Paul ain't lighting people up. <laughs> one of the few books in the Bible where he's not like, I mean, if you remember the Corinthian series, they was wilding, right? But, but here... We see Paul giving this encouraging news or this, receiving this encouraging message about this group of people. And so we, we start in verse 1, and he says, Additionally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. Paul does three things here. He reminds them of the instructions that they received from him when he was with them. Right? So he reminds them of the instructions he gave. He, he gave them instructions on how to live and please God. Right? But not only that, he affirms and commends them for following those instructions. So he said, we gave you instructions on how to live and please God, and you've been doing that. You, you've been killing it. You've been following through on those instructions. Everything that we spent time telling you about, talking to you about, about how to live and please God, you've been doing those things. But then he says... Then he exhorts them to to do more than what you're doing. He says, I see you killing it for the glory of God. You're doing what we've instructed you to do. Now I want you to step it up a notch. I want you to do it a little bit more. 
right? This, this is so encouraging to hear as this group of Christians, as a community of faith that is killing it in the gospel. And even though they're killing it in the gospel, Paul says there's still some room for improvement. And so he exhorts them. He says, he says as you're doing this, do it more and more. Continue on in it because the end goal of their obedience was right living that pleased God. This is where Paul was trying to get them to. Paul was trying to get them to right living that pleased God. That brings me to my, my first and, and only point for today. Living a life that is pleasing to God requires God-inspired effort. Living a life that is pleasing to God requires God-inspired effort. Look at verse 3. It says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. Now, oftentimes when we think about the, the will of God, you know, we're often thinking about God's will for our personal lives. What does God want for me? What does God want me to do? And we spend a lot of time, if we're honest, in the Christian walk, trying not to do the wrong thing because we feel like God has something very specific he wants us to do. And if we don't do that thing, then we're in sin. And we spend so much time trying to figure out the one person that God wants us to marry. The one career that God wants us to have. The one house in the right city that God wants us to live in. And we spend so much time trying to figure out the will of God for our lives personally that we miss the point. God is more concerned about the character of his disciple than the profession of his disciple. See, we, we, we sometimes mix up the will of God for destiny. Like we have this one calling that we're supposed to walk in and we're supposed to walk in it perfectly. But let me, let me let you in on a little secret. God gives you a whole ton of freedom in a lot of areas. What do I mean by that? There's not one person out there for you to marry. You can choose. <laughs> now, in your choosing, you need to use godly wisdom and discernment but you can choose. There's not one profession that you should be working in. God is not concerned whether or not you're a janitor or a surgeon. He's concerned about what type of janitor or surgeon you are. So what, what is God's will? When we say the will of God, what is God's will? Well, there are a number of different elements of God's will. There is God's necessary will. That is things that God must will or do because of his nature. God has to will to exist because that's who he is. He's eternal. So he can't go against his own nature that would violate his character. There's also God's free will. That, are, that is things that God decided to will, but it wasn't necessity. necessity wasn't necessary. He didn't have to. That means salvation was God's free will. God didn't have to save you, but he chose to, right? 
But, but then there is God's secret will and his revealed will. So God's secret will is things that God decides he wants to do that he does not make known to you or me. Therefore, we have to trust him. God's revealed will is God's will in relation to what he's commanded us to do or be that he has made known to us. So here, when Paul says, for this is God's will, he's about to elaborate on the will that God has for our lives that he has made known for us, thereby we can obey him. That makes sense? Okay, so the will of God. The will of God. It says, for this is God's will. This is what God has revealed to us that we are to do in obedience to him. The will of God for your life is your sanctification. This is, God, this is what God wants to see happen in your life. This is what God is going to will to do in your life for the believer is your sanctification. Well, you might be sitting there saying, well, Pastor Kurt, what is sanctification? I'm glad you asked. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I'm going to repeat that one more time. It is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. It is a cooperative effort between God and man, your sanctification. Now, I, I, I wanted to put some slides up. Can you hit me with the slides? There are three stages of sanctification. One is sanctification has a definite beginning of regeneration, which means the moment that you trust Christ for salvation, sanctification begins. The minute that your heart has been regenerated by the power of the gospel message, sanctification starts immediately. It, it's not delayed. Y'all with me? It's, say it starts immediately. What I say, say? It starts immediately. Thank you. That was a little better. That means that there is a definite moral change that begins at salvation. There is a definite moral change that begins at salvation. Once we have been born again, we cannot continue to sin as a habit or a pattern of life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, sin can't be normal for you. The pattern of sin and the habit of sin should not be normative to your life. If you are in a habit or pattern of sin, especially unrepentant sin, then you might want to ask the question, am I really saved? Because the power of new spiritual life within us keeps us from yielding to a life of sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. But not only that, but it involves a definite breaking from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin. That means, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes as Christians, we act like we don't like to sin. Maybe I'm the only one. I'll be honest. You don't got to be honest because you're not preaching, but I'll be honest. The reason you sin is because you like to. I'm going to let that sink in. The reason that you choose to sin is because you enjoy it. 
Sanctification says that there should be a breaking of sin's rule in our lives. Not only so that we can say no to sin and yes to God, but also so that we enjoy it less and less. Romans 6, 11 and 14 says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, for sin will have no dominion over you. See, that's, that's the beautiful thing about the power of salvation is when you trust Christ for salvation, sin is no longer your master. Sin no longer can tell you what to do. Unfortunately, we've continued to believe the lie that we can't say no or that we have to sin. Galatians 5 says something different. It says that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Sin has no dominion over you. So if, that, if this is true, next slide, then there are two things that we can't say. We can no longer say that I'm completely free of sin, Right? As long as on this side of eternity you have a flesh and a spirit, they're going to constantly be at war with one another. And so this side of eternity, there is going to be a, a battle raging inside of you to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. So if you say that you have no sin, then I'll just say to you what the Bible says. You're a liar. But... Not only can we not say that, but we also can't say sin has defeated me, so there's no point in changing. Because then what that means is we've given up and we've stopped believing that sin has no dominion over us. Which can't be true of the Christian when the Bible clearly says that you are free from sin and it no longer has dominion over you. So that was the first one. The first one. Number one, sanctification has a definite beginning. Number two sanctification increases throughout our life. Which means if sanctification starts as soon as you become a believer, when you go home to be with Jesus, you shouldn't be in the same spot. There should be some growth along the way. There shouldn't be any Benjamin Button ministry happening in your lives. either where you stop growing or start going backwards. There should be a natural progression of growth. It's just like with any baby. When you have a baby, it's small. If your baby is not growing, if your baby's not gaining weight, the doctors get concerned because they say, think that something's wrong, right? And so your baby shouldn't be 14 and still not know how to walk. There is a natural growth progression that takes place. The same thing happens with the believer. The minute you trust Jesus Christ, there is an expectation for you to be growing. That is the expectation. So you can't get mad at people when they challenge you on your mess because you're not growing. They're not judging you. They're holding you up according to what's expected normally of the, belie of the believer. They ain't no super saint. They ain't extra. They not on fire for Jesus. They are holding you accountable to what's normally expected of the Christian, that you be growing. Not only that, but sanctification number three is completed at death when the Lord returns and gives us our new resurrected bodies, which means you should be growing until God 
calls you home and gives you your glorified body that's been perfected and looks like him. Until that time comes, you should be regularly, constantly growing in your faith. Three stages. It begins at regeneration. It should be continuously going. And it doesn't end until we get our glorified bodies. Amen. So he says, for this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, your sanctification. Not only that, but man cooperates with God in sanctification. It doesn't mean that you have an equal role or work in the same way, only that we cooperate with God in a way that's appropriate as his creation, right? So when we say that God isn't going to do it without you, you don't magically just mature in Christ. Sometimes we sit back and we look at other people's walk and we're like, man, I wish I could, I wish I had, man, they just, they're so consistent in reading their Bible. Man, they just seem like they have a depth in their prayer life with God. Man, they, they, they walk by faith in a way that I wish I could. And, and, and we don't contribute anything to try to grow in our spiritual walks or in our disciplines. We just look like them and wish that we could get there and hope one day we're going to wake up and just be there. That's like me trying to travel to another country and never getting on a plane. <laughs> hey, yo, I'm going to France tomorrow. <laughs> Man, when's your flight leave? I ain't got no flight. <laughs> I, I love what Wayne Grudem says in, in, in Systematic Theology about, uh, about this. He says, I am simply concerned about this, this relationship of man working with God or cooperating with God in our sanctification. Listen to what he says. He says, I am simply concerned that if we say sanctification is entirely God's work, we can be misunderstood and encourage an excessively passive role on the part of Christians who may be led to think that they need to do nothing in the process of sanctification in their lives. It is important that we continue to grow both in our passive trust in God to sanctify us and our active striving for holiness and greater obedience in our lives. If we neglect active uh, striving to obey God, we become passive, lazy Christians. If we neglect the passable role of trusting God and yielding to him, we become proud and overly confident in ourselves. In either case, our sanctification will be greatly deficient. We must maintain faith and diligence to obey at, at the same time. The role that we play in sanctification is both a passive one where we trust in God and an active one in which we strive to obey God. And there is a balance struck between the two as we grow, right? This is, this is what I like to call make every effort theology. Effort means, it means to, it has that connotation of doing battle, competing in athletic contests or, or a moral striving, Right? It's, it's a God-inspired effort that is necessary on your part, and it happens in two ways. There is the effort of resistance, where we see a, a flee from sexual immorality or resist the devil or abstain from such and such. There is an effort of resistance, keeping yourself apart from, staying away from, but there's also the effort of pursuit. The, the following or running after uh, uh, holiness or pursuing godliness and, and kindness and, and self-control. And, 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 and that's, what, that's what this effort looks like. It's either an effort of pursuit or, or an effort of resistance. Let me see if I can um, help, help make this clear a little bit. So 
don't know how many of you guys watch basketball, but last week the, the finals started, right? And it's, you know, Cleveland, basically LeBron versus the Warriors, <laughs> right? And, you know, I, like, I, I'm, I'm not going to get into the LeBron-Jordan debate. I don't have time for that. But, but I like LeBron, but I also, I like Steph Curry, right? And, and the, first, the first night of the games, you know, the Warriors are going on their little run, and Steph did something that he normally does in a game that most people can't do, but for some reason he just makes it look easy. He's coming down court on a fast break, and he pulls up from like 35 feet. <laughs> Nothing but net. Easy, right? Crowd goes wild. I'm sitting on my couch like, yeah, it's crazy. You know what I'm saying? But there was one time earlier in the season where he did that. And I, I, y'all probably going to remember this. He came up, pulled up fast break, 35 feet. And before, before he even released the ball, he had already turned around and was like running down the court. Didn't even watch it go in. I mean, you got to have some swag to do that. I mean, like, because if you miss, coach is putting you on the bench, right? But, but so he did this, man. He... He shot it, turned around, and every, like everybody's going crazy. I'm like, yo, that's tough. Now, if you don't play basketball, you don't know how hard that is to do. Because typically, there is a muscle memory involved with shooting uh, where, you know, you, know, you got to be aligned right here. It's a little you know, triangle box right there. You know, you got all that stuff to follow through. You got to be landing in the same spot and all that stuff. This dude literally shot the ball and spun in the air and started running back before he did that. So he made it look easy. So, you know, next time I go play basketball, I'm like, oh, man, I'm doing that. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So every time I play ball now, I try it at least once, right? Now, I'm going to be honest, I've never made it yet. And my teammates be looking at me like I'm crazy, like, why would you take a stupid shot like that, right? And I'm just like, man, I'm trying to be like Steph, because one day I'm going to make it, and I'm going to be talking a lot of trash. But anyway, I, I've never made the shot. And the, the reason that I haven't made the shot is because I haven't trained and I haven't practiced. So, for some reason, I don't know what it is with us guys, man. We watch somebody do something on TV, and we think we can just replicate that easily, <laughs> right? But, but training, like, I haven't trained my body or my mind or my emotions in a way that would say that I'm ready to be able to do that. I haven't trained my body enough in the gym or my muscle memory on the basketball court to be able to do that. I haven't trained my, my mind to know not only the plays that I need to know, but also the plays that my opponent runs so that I'm ready for them. Like what hours of work have I spent in the gym and on the basketball court consistently doing it over and over and over and over again to the point where my body automatically knows what to do without even thinking? I haven't trained like that. But not only have I not trained like that, I also haven't practiced. I haven't put my training into game-like situations. See, it's one thing to just train with nobody in the gym, but unless you put your, your, what you've trained on in game-like situations, then it's just theoretical. So the reason that I can't do this is because not only have I not trained, but I also haven't practiced. See, many times we fail as a believer to actually grow in our sanctification is because we don't do any training and we don't practice. What, what are, like, how much time are you spending in God's word to download your soul with his word so that you might walk in purity according to his word? 
so that you've hidden his word in your heart that you might not sin against it. See, you'll sin against God's word if you don't know his word. You'll sin against God's word if you haven't downloaded the, the, the scriptural nutrients of his word onto your life. And then you got to practice it. What is practice? That means you don't, how much do you, time do you spend pursuing self-control? How much time do you spend pursuing godliness and pursuing kindness? That means not waiting until a situation happens to you so that you can respond. That means going out and practicing these things ahead of time. That way, when the big lights are on, you've got muscle memory. And you already know how to respond without even thinking about it because you've spent so much time in God's gym. Training and practicing. See, for us, we, we've got to stop thinking that God is okay with lazy Christianity and that he's just going to make us godly disciples. But So he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality. Now, one of the funniest things to me in this passage was that Paul is encouraging this group of Christians that have been killing it for Jesus. I mean, they, they are walking so faithfully. I mean, you, you could probably put them up against any other church named in the New Testament, and they would, they would probably meet them or surpass them. And for some reason, for some reason, Paul still has to remind them to be sexually pure. Oh, y'all don't find that funny? Maybe, maybe y'all don't struggle with sexual conduct. Maybe y'all don't struggle in sexual behavior. Maybe you don't got to take your thoughts captive. Maybe you don't date anybody and go a little bit too far physically. Maybe you're not watching stuff you don't got no business watching on TV. But, but it's funny to me that out of all the things that Paul could have emphasized to them, to this church that was doing so well, was to talk about their sexual behavior. And not only that, but sanctification is a broad terminology that covers a lot for the Christian walk. But he says, the will of God for your life is your sanctification, namely your sexual conduct. This, this, this is so interesting. So he says, he says that you keep away, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This word is uh, the word porneia, which is a general term for nearly any type of sexual sin, including prostitution, adultery, fornication, sexual fantasies, watching pornography, self-pleasure, and I'll just add what Galatians 5.21 adds, and thing li things like these. Yeah. Wow. Just in case I don't name something that you may be engaged in, and you say, oh, okay, I'm good. Y'all know how we do. Oh, well, he didn't say that. It's not that bad. So I'll just add, and things like these. I like how one commentary says, it says, various kinds of unsanctioned sexual behavior. So he says, this is, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, that you keep away from all of these things, this sexual immorality. Then he goes down in, in verse 4, and he says this. He says, 
that each of you knows how to control his own body. Self-control, that you control your own body. But then I like this. He says, in holiness and in honor. Now, I like verse, I'm going to read verse 5 because verse 4 and 5 are almost the antithesis to one another, right? So verse 4, he says, he says that each of you know how to, knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles do who don't, knew, don't know God, right? So he's, he's admonishing them to have self-control that is both holy and honorable, and it stands as the antithesis in verse 5 of lustful passions and ignorance of God right? Holiness, the conformity of God's character, which implies a knowledge of God, right? And then honor, a respect for the opinion and concern for the well-being of others, primarily other-centered. So he wants your self-control to be holy, meaning that your sexual behavior and your self-control should have an awareness and a respect for God and his ways and what he's commanded us to do. But he also wants your self-control in your sexual behavior to be honorable, meaning that it's other-centered and not self-serving, but has others in mind. Does that make sense? He says, wherever we exercise self-control, we declare with our lives a gospel truth that those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions uh, and desires, right? So sexual activity is not an inconsequential private activity between consenting adults. Sexual activity is always God-focused and others-focused. I'll say it again, wife. I heard you. Uh, sexual activity is not an inconsequential private activity between consenting adults, Sexual activity is always God-focused and others-focused. It's always holy, God-focused, and it's always honorable, others-focused, right? Now, now this, this is great. I, 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 one, of, one of the commentaries says, it says, while the term holiness itself is broad enough to encompass the full range of Christian behavior, Paul focuses on a single aspect of what it entails, namely sexual morality. This topic would have been of particular significance for anyone recently converted, converted from pagan culture in view of the wide range of sexual norms and practices that existed in Greco-Roman society. Sexual fidelity was demanded of wives and in some circles upheld as a virtue in husbands as well. At the same time, however, uh, a, a wide range of pre- and extramarital activity was tolerated and occasionally even encouraged. Thus, it could not be assumed that converts brought with them into the church any common understanding or expectation regarding sexual behavior. This was an area where socialization into the norms of the new community was definitely necessary. He goes on to say that Paul's strategy for developing a common sexual ethic is worth noting. What Paul offers to people coming from widely differing backgrounds is an ethic based on the one thing he knows they all share, a relationship with the one true God. In other words, what they already have in common becomes the starting port for building towards a common understanding of sexual conduct in the Christian context, which means sexual conduct starts with a knowledge of who God is and a commitment to brotherly love. So what essentially what, what he's saying is, I'm not going to assume that just because we're all in here together, that we, set, we share the same foundational understanding of what the norm should be for the Christian sexual, sexual ethic in the church. Does that make sense? 
That means that because we come from varying different backgrounds, not even just ethnic backgrounds, not even just religious backgrounds, but backgrounds in terms of our thought of understanding, even when you get saved, there is no, no, you bring a norm into what you think about everything in the church, even what you think about sex. And so what Paul is saying here is our understanding of healthy, biblical, God-glorifying, honorable, sexual, ethical conduct has to be rewritten so that we start from the same foundation. Namely, it starts from the character of who God is. So in order for us to share a common understanding of what is biblically acceptable in our sexual conduct, we have to start with who is God and what does God say about it. And then we go from there. So you can't come in and say, well, this is what I've experienced. Or this is what I've heard. As long as you don't come home with no babies. I've heard that. I was told that from a Christian. As long as you don't come home with no babies. As long as you don't get nobody pregnant. As long as you both agree that this is the natural progression in your relationship. I'm, I'm, I feel empowered to use my body however I want to. There, there, there is a wide range of ideals that exist even in the church. I can guarantee you if we asked everybody in here right now what was appropriate sexual conduct for the Christian, I would get some different answers. And so Paul here is stating that that. We have to start. The foundation for the Christian has to begin with what does God think about sex? And what does he expect of us as his followers and his disciples so that we may make sure that our sexual behavior and conduct is both holy and honorable? I got to get moving. So he says, he says not with lustful passions like the Gentiles do who do not know God. This means one must not transgress or sin against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we, offenses as we have also previously told and warned you. Sexual conduct, sexual misconduct involves a breakdown of the ethical standards that distinguish the Christian community from outsiders and a significant threat to the sense of kinship and unity within the community. That means, that means as a church, when we engage in sexual misconduct, we not only dis- diminish the witness of the church to non-Christians, but we violate the familial unity that's supposed to exist among one another. So the minute you get adopted into the family of God, we now become brothers and sisters in Christ. So what happens, brother, when you take advantage of your sister in Christ sexually? Now there is distrust amongst the family. Now there is brokenness amongst the family. What happens when we are, you know, just free in our sexual behavior out in the world? then the the witness of Jesus Christ, not the witness of you, because you're not bearing your name, 
the witness of Christ is now diminished. Like, man, they don't even take their God seriously. I, I, I remember before I got married, I had a sexual, sexual past. Though One of the relationships I, I was in was purely sexual in nature. And I remember getting saved shortly thereafter and having to go back and repent to her because I was not representing what a Christian was supposed to be like. And I remember her looking at me like, I, okay. But for me, the Lord had impressed it upon me that, man, she thinks less about Christianity because of what you've done. If, if you were the only person in her life that she knew that was a Christian, was she drawn closer to me or further away? There, there, there is a, a witness issue at stake, and there is a familial unity at stake. Holiness, honorable. Holiness, honorable. Sex has always been a community issue. It ain't nothing new. It ain't nothing. Sex, sex has always been a community issue. If you go back and look at the, in the Old Testament, look at the law and see all the laws that were written about sexual behavior. When, when sexual misconduct took place, who judged the individuals? The community did. When a marriage happened and a husband and wife had to consummate, who was there to make sure that the woman was a virgin? The community was. Sex has always been a community issue. That, now that doesn't mean that they need to be all up in your business about what y'all do in the bedroom. But there is a shared accountability that exists about the health of our sexual conduct, whether you're married or not. This is why I don't mind talking about my sex life openly. Now, with some limits and restraints, y'all ain't going to know all my business. But, but listen, when I first started doing it, my wife was uncomfortable. She got used to it now. But people, people need to know that Christians can engage in sexual behavior in a righteous and holy way that honors the Lord. People need to know, especially in, in, in the black community, they need to know that there are men that exist who can be faithful to their wives sexually and enjoy the same woman for years and years and years. We, we need to know that in the church. They, they need to know that the pastor enjoys his wife. They need to know that that, that, that is a healthy relationship. That is a, a natural part of healthy marriage that a husband and wife. See, I know we hear, we hear stories uh, about like, you know, husbands complaining all the time because they, they you know, they, they're not experiencing the fruitfulness of that aspect of the relationship. People need to know that it's normal in the Christian life to have sex with your wife and it be good. Because I'm not going to sit up here, like, we need to change the narrative from the church that sex isn't bad and you shouldn't do it. No, God created sex. Sex was God's idea. I need y'all to hear me on this. God created sex and it was his idea and he created it to be good. It is, it is something, it is, thank you, Brother Reggie. I got a witness in here somewhere. 
Amen, Doc. Amen, Doc. Listen, it is, it is, it is something to be looked forward to, right? See, now, now what's happened, though, is we've dumbed, we've dumbed sex down to be just about pleasure. And then, and then we miss out on all that God has created for sex to be in marriage. And so we're not willing to wait because it's like, why wait? We can get that now. But God has booby-trapped sex and your sexual conduct so that you can't even experience the fullness of what it's supposed to be unless you do it his way. See, sex outside of marriage produces shame and guilt and brokenness. But, but in, sex inside of marriage is security and peace and love and goodness. And so the, the issue on the table is, will you believe God? When he says that if you do it my way, if I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Will you believe him? It's always been a, a community issue. I, 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 need, I need to land the plane. Um, so he says, he says uh, verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity but to live uh, in Holiness. He has not called us to be defiled, but to holiness, to be set apart, to, be, uh, to live lives of marked distinction uh, between uh, the believers, the Christian life, and the world. And then he says this in, in verse 8. He says, he says, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God. He says, if you reject this teaching about sexual conduct in the, in the community, if you, if you reject this teaching on the role that you're supposed to play to make every effort to keep away from sexual immorality, if you reject that and you're going to do your own thing, listen, you ain't, you ain't got no issue with me. You might be sitting there in a chair right now like, man, Pastor Kurt, I don't agree with nothing you're saying right now. Like, you bugging. You tripping. That's cool. You ain't got beef with me, though. You got beef with God. Like, so am, am I concerned if you're sitting in your chair right now and you don't agree with me? Yeah. You know why? Because I want you to experience all of what God has for you. I want you to experience the goodness of God in, in, in terms of enjoying it the way he's created it to be. But ultimately, your issue ain't with me. You got to take that up with God. And so a rejection of this teaching, Paul literally says the rejection of this teaching, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. Because his sanctification and your holiness is rooted in his character. So a rejection of his teaching is a rejection of him. This is how seriously God wants you to take your Christian walk. This is how seriously he wants you to take your growth in Christ. That he would say, he would say that this is an area of your sanctification that I want you to make a priority. And not only that, but you can't shirk this off. If you, don't, if you reject this, you're rejecting me. Your sexual life and conduct is a matter of devotion and discipleship. It's a matter of devotion and discipleship. As a follower of Jesus Christ, it is important, an important part of how you please God. Now, again, this all goes back to the instructions that Paul said he gave them, that they might live, that they might know how to live and to please God. The sexual conduct that you live by can please God. How you live sexually 
can please God. I bet you didn't know that God cared that much about you, how, you, how you acted sexually. He cares about your sexual lives, not just as individuals, but also as, for us as a community, as a church, as his covenant people. God cares and is deeply concerned. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put it in his word for us to know. But listen, I'll end on this. I'm way over my time, but I'll end on this. Maybe you're sitting here. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, well, man, Pastor Kurt, I done done everything he told us not to do. I, like, what, what is there left for me? Where, where, where do I go from here when, when I've... When I haven't abstained, when I've engaged, when I've hurt brothers and sisters sexually, and I've engaged in misconduct and I haven't been self-controlled, what is, what is left for me? If, if I could, I would take you and, and tell you a story about Abraham and how he didn't want to wait on God. And so he took, even though he was married, he took his, his wife's uh, maidservant, Hagar, and had a child with her and then kick them out on two different occasions. Or I might take you over to Rahab, which was spoken about earlier, a prostitute, a known prostitute in, from, from, from a city of, uh, of, of evildoers, not a covenant woman of God. Or I could take you to a, a king who God describes as a man after his own heart, David, who looked out on his balcony and saw a woman that was not his wife but already married and then impregnated her and killed her husband. I could go through, I could go through a litany of people in the Bible and stories in the Bible to let you know how sexually uh, confused and disobedient they were. But, but, but I, I'm, I'm here to tell you this, that God didn't leave their stories for us to exalt their sexual failures, but to remind us that despite us, he can redeem our stories. So, so if, you're, if you're sitting here today and you're like, what's there left for me? I'm, I'm here to tell you there's a lot left for you and God wants to redeem your story. He's just waiting on you to give a little effort. He's not going to do it on his own. He's, he's waiting for you to get up and get in your Bible and press into your word and strive for obedience and strive to obey. He's, he's just waiting on you to give a little effort. I'm here to tell you, the battle's already won. Your story's already been written. He just wants you to get up and give a little effort. So that, that's, that's the challenge for, for us today. Will you cooperate with God so that you can grow and be the man or woman of God that he wants you to be. Because he's not going to do it without you. Let's pray. Our Father.